Yo, welcome to my podcast. I'm your host, John Solo. I'll be talking to touring musicians, artists, producers, engineers, and crewmen all around the world. I'm interested in knowing what brings people to this crazy lifestyle and how music became their passion. I, for one, have spent most of my life in front of a keyboard and continue to learn and understand why it is I do what I do. I feel honored and privileged to have worked and become friends with many of the guests on this show. And for those of you who don't understand what hotel life is about, you're listening to Late Checkout. All right, welcome. I'm in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, and I'm with Ben Edgar right now, an old touring partner, friend of mine. I shouldn't say old. Right? I'm younger than you. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> you are younger than me. But um, we've been uh, we've definitely done some miles together out here. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been really good. Uh, for those who don't know, he plays guitar and electric and mandolin, banjo, lap steel. Do you play pedal steel as well? I have one that, yeah, is slowly becoming part of the arsenal, but it's, it's this sort of thing, unlike, um, say, for example, the banjo, where the, there are things that you can translate directly from guitar. Um I feel like pedal steel is an entirely new instrument. Oh. Even though it is classified in, in the guitar family, it's it's an entirely new beast <laughs> on, yeah, you, on so many levels. Yeah, and the tuning's really weird on it, right? Like, you don't just, it's not standard or anything. No, and yeah, even within the world of pedal steels, like, it, it's hard to find a standard setup for the instruments. Like, there's greatly varied number of um, knee levers and pedals that you can have, and then how, you know, which strings are, are tuning up and down, sometimes simultaneously, sometimes one will go up and the other goes down, and that's, you know, that's oh, um, customizable by, yeah. by the user, so it's it's really, yeah, quite a process getting to know that instrument. Yeah, I always yeah. feel like the, the pedal steel is much like the Hammond B3 organ, because you're using your feet and both yeah. hands, and, and it's just a beast. I mean, it really is yeah. something. you got to dedicate a lot of time to it, it seems like. Totally, yeah. And they're and much like the B3, there there are unique settings that, like classic settings that oh, yes. various artists would have. Like, you know, it's like, here's the Jimmy Smith setting here. Oh, like, okay. Similar with, with the pedal steel. It's like, all right, this is the way, say, Daniel Lamoire might, might approach his E9th tuning. tuning. Yeah. Yeah. So you are you planning on trying to like learn it more? Yeah, definitely. I I would love to um yeah, really get some chops happening on that. Yeah. Whereas the lap steel is like tuned is that tuned differently too? Uh, from the guitar? The one I have I have got tuned to a C six. Um so yeah, it it is yeah, I've I've never played a guitar in that yeah. same tuning. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um and consequently I, I feel that um, lap steel can go, can coexist well with guitars because the, the voicing it's quite close together. It's C, E, G, A, C, E. Oh, okay. So you get a, a major it's like third, a, a minor third, chord. yeah, or a major, a third major second, a minor third, and then a major third on top. So with those intervals, you can get some pretty close voicings. Which in in a, in the world of, of guitars, for example, um, say playing with, <laughs> I don't know if um, I'm stepping too far ahead here, but no. I guess your your listeners would know that we're playing with passenger right now. Exactly. Yeah. yeah well. Right. Yeah. yeah. My five listeners are definitely. Listening. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Solo's mom. Hi, Solo's yeah, exactly. dad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, for example, in in this gig, you know, if if Mike Passenger is is playing his guitar and you're playing keys, you've got things covered, and I'm I'm trying to consider a part that will coexist amongst what's already a, a really strong. Um, sort of sonic palette then the, that's I find the lap steel can help there because it's a not only is the texture quite different like the ability to be able to fade in on the volume pedal and you know create these big long round textures but also the voicings are, are much closer and you can find just little two or three note things that can offer a lot of color but not necessarily consume a huge amount of space oh yeah yeah, yeah so it works good with keys you're right yeah yeah, yeah. I, I find that that's something that's you know can be a challenge I mean I'm I'm really grateful to not have to really address this ever with you and it's, it's always been that way since we it's true since when we started we, playing we never have to talk about it we yeah. never stay stay out of each other's ways i think it's because we use our ears more like i'm not i'm just listening to where it should fit yeah and so are you and we're both doing that so we never get in each other's way yeah and not once it's, it's really it's actually awesome. it's been a lot of fun yeah um, it's a rarity I, f I feel like that's um it's easy to take for granted you know when it's working well the interplay between guitar and keyboards but yeah when it's not going well it's a it's a pretty hideous thing. More so for the guitar player, I think. Usually, I've learned that if if there's a piano player who wants to consume a lot of space, or a keyboard player, 
organ player than that's most keyboard players yeah right? that's right and it's really <laughs> it's important so easy. there's but 10 fingers and you can, <laughs> exactly. you can cover the whole spectrum and such a massive sonic range yeah um, yeah usually guitar has to take a back seat which is cool you know sometimes that's that's what needs to happen but yeah yeah i've been in situations where a balance hasn't existed on the gig and it's just been a huge wall of <laughs> yeah. keyboard related sounds it's like man there's, there's not much i can do and like rank K- casio piano yeah. sounds <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's, let's go back to the beginning. When did you start playing guitar? Uh, I started playing guitar in the first year of high school, so I would have been 12. High school now. starts at 12. Well, we call that middle school, I think. Uh, middle know. school. Cool. We as in Americans. You're from Australia, right? Yes. Well, I know that. If but anyone didn't get that. <laughs> yeah, at this if point. any of you guys didn't get that, I'm from Australia. <laughs> yeah. You were born in Melbourne, correct? Mm-hmm. Nice. Yes, which is where I currently reside. Yeah, and love it. Um, so you started at twelve years old. Um, yeah, and was pr- it like given to you, or you just wanted to play it? Uh, well, prior to that, probably from the age of maybe seven, I I had played piano. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. There you go. Well, everyone, <laughs> no, because you get on the piano sometimes, and I'm like, oh, man, you got some chops there. And chops? It's well, you can play at least. <laughs> you can get around. You know the chords. and Yeah. I mean, that's huge, actually, just even to have that basic knowledge. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I played piano for a few years, and then um, I guess, yeah, lost interest um, towards the end of primary school at the start of high school. But then, yeah, I felt really drawn towards guitar and started getting lessons at my school which was cool and at that same time I was um, really getting into Seattle grunge oh nice grunge of your hometown yeah well or your home city yeah yeah. college city I guess Seattle Like we can claim that I guess being from Ellensburg yeah uh, why not it's close enough. The grunge yeah. of your state. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, a yeah. lot of those grunge bands kind of came from, you know, Screaming Trees are from Ellensburg, and, yeah, and right. uh, Nirvana was from Aberdeen. and I mean, there were all these small towns. It wasn't really all just Seattle-related, but... Yeah. So you were, like, into what? Like, Nirvana? And yeah, Alice yeah. And Chains? And, yeah. I was definitely into, into Soundgarden as well. Oh, nice. Pearl Jam. I know they're not, they're not from Seattle, but... Um. Well, they are. No, Stone Gossard. Most of the band oh, is they from... Are. Yeah, oh, yeah. Stone is from Seattle, and uh, Mike McCready, I believe, is from there. Excellent. Some of the guys, you're right, though, like Eddie Vedder, I believe, is from San Diego or something. Uh, we can fact check this later. I don't really <laughs> care. <laughs> so, yeah, I, my early guitar years was um, were spent... Yeah, jamming along with those songs and loving it. Like oh. every opportunity I had at school, like every lunch break, I'd be smashing out Nirvana riffs through a little semi camp with some weird oh, nice. like, $30 and fuzz pedal. And, and this is just a regular school, wasn't like a uh, precision school or whatever. No, I mean, it, it had uh, a, a relatively good or um, focused music program, which, mm-hmm. which was good, yeah. Um, it was great, actually, yeah. The performing arts department was, um, and still is, pretty excellent so yeah fortunately there was access to great facilities and yeah in those earlier years I, I had a cool teacher who was who was just happy to you know for me to cruise into the lessons and say what do you want to play what do you what have you been listening to it's like show me these riffs please and he's like oh cool yeah let's sort that out that's and, awesome yeah yeah and then um a few years later my taste migrated more into the likes of, of Led Zeppelin like I went deep into Led Zeppelin and was really drawn to um the colors of Jimmy Page's well, both his production and, and his his parts, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess a, a way to simply put it, the, his technique of orchestrating guitars. Yeah, which in that band is pretty unique. And the tunings and stuff. Yeah, exactly. He's around with those tunings. altered tunings, like working out things like Rain Song. And, um, yeah, I mean, that, that was really educational and, you know, treating the guitar as, as almost like an orchestral instrument. And I think Led Zeppelin's quite a unique band, too, for that to exist, because you've got Robert's plant, or Robert Plant's voice yeah. like sitting right up top, which gives all this space in, in the middle, you know? Like yeah. The drums are fat and beefy and warm, and I think there's, there's more scope for guitars to coexist with a voice in a band like that than there would be regularly with a, with a male vocal that would sit much lower, you know? Yeah, oh, that's, you know, I never thought of it like that. And there's no harmonies on it, which really leaves a lot of space. Yeah. He just had this yeah. one lead line really high, and then you're right, all this space there in the mid-range. Yeah. And uh, that's that was Jimmy Page's genius on that and the riffs. And, uh, so cool. I got really, I was very similar. I think I started with Led Zeppelin from my brother. When he was a really big fan, and uh, he gave me, like, or he, I, I think I stole from him when I was a kid. Led Zeppelin for the tape. I like borrowed nice. it from him, and he let me listen to it. And uh, 
were you like into his tones and stuff were you trying to like kind yeah, of emulate definitely. that sound and his acoustic playing as well and um, some of the mandolin playing on those albums which I, th- I think was John Paul Jones like I started getting into that as well like I was able to borrow a mando from my friend's dad who was into music I would have been maybe 15 at this at this time and yeah just fiddling around with that tuning too like that was my first experience playing an instrument tuned in fifths which was really interesting at that time as well oh so you learned how to play all those other instruments early on it wasn't like well just added it later yeah well back then yeah i was kind of fiddling not really knowing yeah (laughs) a lot of what was going on but just getting a feel for yeah yeah alternatives other than the um the standard tuning yeah Yeah. did you ever did you start a band at this time or were you just messing around still i was just messing around a lot yeah jamming with other musos at school and then um actually around around about that time this yeah, I would have been about 15. Um, I ended up getting another teacher at school who um, certainly changed my direction. He was uh, he was a jazz double bass player, but he, he started teaching guitar at my school, and the previous guitar teacher had left, and it was awesome. He, he introduced me to his world, wow, which really changed my course a, a lot. And he was a great teacher in that he didn't he didn't really accept any shit. Like he wouldn't. Oh. That's fine. Don't oh, worry. Oh, cool. Okay. It's already here. Yeah, how can I be having a conversation with you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> don't worry. I'm, I'm always. I, this just comes out of my mouth. I don't even know. <laughs> That's good to know. It's a, in fact, I, when I registered the podcast, I said, "Are there any explicit words?" And I was like, "Yes, yes there I'm will sure be. there will be." All of Not them. on purpose. <laughs> well, I'm sorry if I offended anyone. No, it's all good. All right. So he didn't. He didn't take any shit. He wasn't a um, the sort of teacher that would modify his standards based on where he thought a student was at like you know if, if I came in and played something that he thought was corny he'd be like dude what are you playing that for that sounds and he was cool. mainly a jazz guy yeah so you were learning like standards and yeah that's right so yeah he started to introduce me to the world of jazz theory which I, I really loved at the time um, and I also found it really inspiring because unlike um, a lot of music teachers this guy was a like a performing musician some people just teach and that's the bulk of what they do but this guy it was the first or the closest experience I'd had with someone who's like a a professional performing musician who teaches as well or perhaps you know the the teachings the the less significant part of his um, of his profession when I say less uh, less significant less time consuming Mm -hmm. yeah he was doing a lot of gigs at the time so yeah eventually he ended up inviting me to sit in with his band he had some regular gigs and yeah I'd end up jamming with them some Friday and Saturday nights oh that's awesome and you were like still like a kid right yeah teenager or whatever yeah and it was it was mind blowing I remember it was so exciting like hearing these um incredible musicians um that were his band and yeah being able to play with them it was it was terrifying but so energizing at the time yeah you know, like, what were you playing just standards standards yeah what was like your first standard you learned you, uh, you remember like you know there's always one where you really like yeah m- mine was autumn leaves for right. some reason that was the first one where i really like <laughs> i just started really shedding over that one and, and improvising that yeah. was definitely in there I, th- I think the first one may have been all blues actually all the, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Which classic think, miles davis yeah kind of blue on that record yeah and at that age, it was probably cool. It's like, yeah, you can just kind of blues out. I, I knew it. And G is a great exactly. guitar, uh, yeah. guitar key as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you ever, like, did you learn how to play, like, in all, like, the flat keys and, and all that stuff and all the, like, major seven chords? And so you were really developing more instead of just a rock guitar. Yeah, song, that's you know? right. Yeah, that, that's, that was the transition. Like, once I started learning from... From um, from this guy, Bill Crooks was his name. Is he still around out there? Unfortunately, not, man. He's uh, he's not on planet Earth anymore. Oh he's, man, yeah. sorry to hear that. But yeah, he he got um, yeah sick about ten years uh, ago. Oh, actually, it wasn't. Yeah, it was a fairly sudden death. Oh um, man, I think you've there. actually mentioned it yeah. before. Like, yeah, but you learned a lot from him. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So I started tackling um, yeah jazz theory and finding ways to unlock the guitar from being a, an instrument that kind of dictates shapes you know you, you learn a lot of shapes in in the way um you would approach chords and scales like they're sort of these these boxed up shapes so um through studying various books uh, for example the advancing guitarist by mick goodrick you you learn to look at the guitar more like a piano more um horizontally and, and start to get an understanding of it that way which unlocks it from being this kind of boxy shape yeah. thing to just a, a linear 
Yeah, um, you're playing is very much like that. It doesn't sound like a guitar. Like, I mean, I mean that in a good way too. Like, it's like it's obviously a guitar sound, but I don't hear it as just basic guitar. When I pick up a guitar, I'm doing things that I know. Like, it's a very limited to what I can do on it as far as. I, I'm looking at his shapes and stuff, you know, I'm not looking at it. I don't know what it is. I, I don't see it like a piano. Whereas I hear when you were playing, I'm like, oh, that sounds like how I might play that on the piano or yeah, something, right. you know? And Yeah. Well, one thing that I've found, like, these days I, I very rarely do any jazzy sort of stuff, although that was my education. Like, beyond high school, I went on to study at Victorian College of the Arts doing a, a jazz course there, which I, I didn't end up completing. But, um, yeah, I... I did half the course and um, ended up deferring because there were some other things on that I wanted to do and I, I never ended up going back. But that was, I was definitely deep in jazz world for quite a number of years um, and all the theory that comes with that I think is really beneficial to draw from these days even if I'm not playing jazz because um, I feel like it means there's more choice, particularly in contexts like I mentioned earlier if if we've got Mike on this tour and he, he's playing something, he might be capoed up on the fifth fret and you're playing a Hammond part, um, you know, it's like, all right, where, where do I go? Do I do something down here or do I go like way up high? And like yeah. to, to be able to be aware of how things might sound anywhere on the neck or in any sort of um, range on the guitar, that's something that jazz theory has definitely taught me. Definitely. Yeah, and, and ways to, to try and say a lot harmonically without actually filling up, like playing a dense chord. It's like, you know, picking notes that are going to make impact um, to a chord. You know, it might just be a, a two-note voicing, but it's like, cool, that, that's all I need yeah. to make a, a big statement or at least a, a valid statement um, in this section or in this bar or in this chord, you know, that's not necessarily going to consume the space of something else. I feel like that's a benefit that I can... Um, attribute to yeah having having learned jazz theory yeah i mean that's how i feel like i I basically went to jazz school because i i was like listening to grunge music and i had a band and i just wanted to know more about music and i just figured jazz is gonna like give me all that knowledge of how to play anything yeah you know that was my mind and actually it kind of is true it's still like i learned all that theory too and learned how to do it and i i i subconsciously use it now I don't like I don't like think oh well he's playing this chord and I can do this because that just works I just now we just know how to do it. it's more just filling a space like you were saying it's yeah. like I'm, if I'm playing in this range you play in that range and vice versa I just know like oh that's not working um, and having having actual knowledge of what you're doing does help a lot it helps for sure and, and what I, that's one thing I've noticed out of, uh, out of a lot of professional musicians that do what we do playing the in pop world or whatever we call it uh, singer songwriters and bands is there is a big knowledge, a jazz background because it even though we're not playing jazz whatever professionally like no one calls me to to go on tour and play jazz anymore or yeah. never really did but but having that knowledge is is a big part of my playing and yeah. even though I don't do any of it you know it's like a, a toolkit really isn't yeah. it it's like you, you get all these tools and then I think for a lot of people um, I don't know if, if this was the case for you but like I found like once learning the information like coming from an academic perspective learning to let go of a lot of that um definitely took some time and it's probably still taking time like uh and i think i think being in a a lot of recording sessions has really helped with that as well not just from uh, reflecting upon you know what may have been better or maybe too busy or maybe too colorful but also having worked with producers where you know i'll play something that i think is cool and that might work stylistically they're like whoa dude what's in that chord what's that funny note like this shouldn't shouldn't that be in there like Nah, dude, take that out. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. But, you know, you, you can become so immersed in um, in the extensive language, particularly when, you, when you're practicing a, a lot of scales and, like, learning to play outside and trying all these ways of, you know, exploring different sounds. It, um, it can be easy to lose sight of what's required for, for songs, particularly in, in pop music, like, or just generally stylistically, you know, I've found that it's very important to be aware of what sort of colors you're putting into something like be really aware because mm-hmm. it is easy just to let habitual things slip in or to let certain colors that you may have been focusing on a lot lately if you've been digging a certain artist or practicing a certain thing like yeah I've learned or I'm still learning that it's it's very important to 
sense of those things in certain contexts. Yeah, when yeah. I was in college, there was this guitar player. He's actually doing very well. His name's Tim Young. He's from L.A. He went to my college. Um, he came in one day, and our theory teacher couldn't make any sub for it. And I was like, oh, I was kind of wanting to meet him and really get an idea of what he was about. And he comes in, and this made a big impression on me. He was like, these are my favorite chord progressions. And he played like an E and a B, which is like a power chord, and then went to the G and the D. Yeah, and right. just just like super corny, really normal like rock stuff. And I was like, that's funny. And then he was like, when I first played guitar, this is my favorite shit. You know, he's just doing this basic stuff. And I was like, I thought he was going to really like blow my mind, you know, like all this intricate stuff. And then he said, the first thing you want to learn to do when you graduate here is figure out how to forget everything you learned in here. <laughs> <laughs> and advice, it's yeah. so true like it took me like a good five six years to forget all that theory and I, you're right I'm probably still like struggling with it to this day especially in a studio when you're like no trust me this works yeah. this chord is what it is and this is how it is and like no I don't like it though something's not working you yeah know? yeah and so because like pr that's why I like working with producers and I know some musicians hate it because they're like they don't know what they're talking about <laughs> and and They'll like they want you to play like play me the color orange and you're like I don't know just sh tell me the chords but <laughs> it's actually better that they do that right because then you start thinking outside of what what you're playing and Definitely. like I know this E works over that chord trust me and then I still find myself in a studio situation kind of being like this guy doesn't know what he's talking about you know and, and yeah. I know that's just my own ego getting in the way of like the final product of being actually good yeah sometimes I envy those who can approach an instrument with um, with very little like knowledge of of what's considered right or wrong theoretical because theoretically because you know we we've spent so much time learning about what you know might be correct or incorrect i think you can actually um, rob yourself of some really interesting choices cuz how many times have you been in a situation where someone's showing you something like um, say on a guitar they may not play guitar very much or yeah you know, I don't want to say they may not play very well because there are a lot of people who are, who are self-taught who just dabble, who play some amazing shit. Exactly. Particularly singers, you know, it's always really interesting to hear the way a singer accompanies themselves. It's um, There are oftentimes, if I'm on a session with someone who's uncomfortable about the way they might be playing um, acoustic guitar, for example, say if it's a singer-songwriter, um, it's not uncommon that they might ask me to do it, but I, I really hate doing that because, you know, often if a song's being written on guitar by the artist, you know, it has a certain character, a certain spirit to it, and there's no way I can I can you, replicate that. I know what you're saying, yeah. yeah. You're like, look, you, the way you're playing that acoustic guitar part with the way you're singing is perfect, the way yeah. it is. Like, it's it, there's no better, you know? Yeah, exactly. And if you do it, yeah, maybe it might sound cleaner, maybe, or so, who knows what it might sound like, but it wouldn't be that, and that's what made it special in the first place. Yeah, I feel like having alternate tunings can really help with... Um, perhaps silencing the judgment of the mind as, as far as, you know, this is right or this is wrong goes, because you really are approaching it um, from an unfamiliar um, stance. Like, you know, Joni Mitchell is a good example. She's used over a hundred different tunings oh, over her recording that. career, which is crazy. Like, she'll just tune it up a certain way and see or feel what comes out, you know? And I think that's really beautiful rather than being calculated, like I'm, I'm gonna do this and I know that this chord works and I've done that in the song before. Like you actually, you got no idea how anything's gonna sound anywhere on the fingerboard. You cruising around, trying different shapes. And I think that's really beautiful. You can really um, stumble upon some, some great stuff. Um, there's a great singer songwriter from um, Melbourne or who lives in Melbourne now. His name's Lior, and he has some really beautiful altered tunings that he uses for a lot of his things. Um, have you played with Lior? I have, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've been fortunate to have done some touring with him and, um, yeah, recorded on a, on a few of his things. He's a legend and such a beautiful guitar player. And, yeah, I, I've seen him sometimes, you know, hunting for things in altered tunings, and he, he can find the most beautiful things wow. in that. It's, it's really incredible to watch. He's got a real knack for it. Well, so, like, speaking of Lior, who was, like, kind of, like, the first artist... I, the first time I think I'd met you, you'd said you'd done some tour with Missy Higgins. Yeah. And, uh... But she wasn't the first artist you toured with, correct? No, but she was, like... That was the first, um... Sort of big-scale artist that I, that I had played with. International uh, tour. Yeah, exactly. Like, that was the first artist I toured on, on a bus with. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For example. Yeah, the, but, do you remember the first bus tour? Like, how would it felt? Like, I do recall. Yeah, it was a big yellow bus. Where was it at? 
That was in the US. Oh, really? Yeah, we spent quite a while in, in the USA with Missy. Um, it was after the release of her second album, On a Clear Night. Um, it's a beautiful album. Mitchell Froome had produced that oh, one. Oh, nice. Yeah, I love Mitchell Froome. Great tones on there. Yeah, it was a real pleasure to play those songs for a couple of years. But yeah, prior to that, I'd, I'd been playing with some other bands in Australia. I'd, I'd done a handful of gigs with this um, great, like really much more commercial than most of the stuff I do now stylistically but yeah her name's Vanessa Amorosi I, I did a small handful of shows with her and um was that so what was your first big like or like oh this is a big gig uh, that would have been that with, and with Vanessa you were Amorosi. pretty young right yeah I would have been maybe 18 or 19 18 or, or 19 yeah. whoa man yeah you're an old road dog now man <laughs> <laughs> well yeah with her it was, it was just a, a few gigs like literally but you know it was it was pretty exciting cause but this is why you like you were saying you went to college a little bit but if yeah. you're already playing with people that's kind of like you're gonna learn anyway on the road yeah you're not gonna learn nobody can teach you that in a school like that's true you, you definitely learn a, a lot from playing live mm-hmm Especially what not to do, you know. It's yeah, like, exactly. I'm learning a whole bunch of stuff. Y- yeah, yeah, and that's where you. I feel like that's where you learn tones, like yeah. getting a prop a proper tone. Absolutely. To, that sounds cool, loud in a big, through a PA system. Because at first, I mean, I know all of us when we first start, our tones are bad. Oh, dude, they're not good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember reading in an interview with Steve Vai of his time with, with <laughs> Frank with, with, yeah. <laughs> with, with Frank Zappa when um, Steve was really young. Um, <laughs> Like, yeah, he, I think it was in the rehearsals, like, early on. Steve came up and said, dude, I got to get you some new amps. You sound like an electrified ham sandwich. Yeah, I've heard, I've read that. Poor <laughs> <laughs> guy. Okay. I sounded like an electrified ham sandwich for quite a while. What was your first, like, guitar rig? Um, first ever, or just, like, when I... Just, like, first touring rig, like, when you, like, okay, you thought it sounded awesome, and you kind of probably look back now and go, ooh, that well, wasn't... Well, that then, like, on those particular shows with Vanessa Amorosi, I was using, um, there was a Digitech multi-effects unit, this sort of, like, purple anodized guy. I think I was running that with a Line 6 pod, which were all the go at the oh, time. Oh, you were like, using pods. Yeah, yeah. Everyone they weren't like, good, though. Like, what was that, early, like, 2001 or two or something yeah, like that? Yeah, exactly. I remember those. They were new, and exactly. everybody was talking about them. Yeah, but, it, you know, it was kind of rank, and yeah. I, did, I didn't have much of an idea for tone. And then, you probably used, what, a lot of flanger or chorus? Oh, never. <laughs> never. <laughs> but, yeah, um, over the years, yeah, I learned to, you know, I learned that, Maybe uh, less gear is actually important for getting good tones. Like, try and coax it more out of the source. Like, it's important that your guitars are set up um, so that you know you can you can coax tone out of them rather than depending on pedals. The other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still love and use a lot of pedals, but if they're off, um, I still like the sound that comes out of the yeah. amps. You know? I mean, I don't yeah. really notice pedal sound like pedals quote-unquote coming off of you it's not like oh he's got that on if anything it just sounds like a sound coming at me like i yeah. know you're using reverbs and like you're more into reverb and delay I feel exactly like. those exactly. type of things yeah. th- which don't really mess with the tone yeah you know and, and that's you create these like i really like it when you do the um the the big kind of patty type sounds where it's like what is what is going on over there it doesn't sound like a guitar it just sounds like this space and but it doesn't fill up the whole room it just fills up a little part there you know and and I'm I always feel like I I'm hearing reverbs and delays like I'm not hearing like flanger <laughs> no, this or wah pedal you don't have a wah pedal right <laughs> I own a couple of wah pedals but they yeah we all went through that phase at one point yeah. I mean I have I know the whole wah phase. Um, <laughs> And then, and then as soon as you stop it, you never go back. <laughs> Funny you should say that. I, I haven't used them in quite some time. Yeah. 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 So anyway, after Vanessa, like... Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I then did some touring in Germany with an Australian band who didn't have a great deal of notoriety in Australia, but were, had been um, building up a following in Germany and some neighboring European countries, and that band was called Naked Raven. Um, and that was great. Yeah, I did a couple of European summer tours with them. That would have been maybe 2004 and 2005. Wow. And that was awesome fun. It was a really interesting lineup. Um, consisted of cello, violin, percussion, or sort of like a, a drum kit that was, um, yeah, made up of various percussive components. So it wasn't a 
like a, just a traditional bash it out drum kit. Um, and the singer Janine Warner played some piano as well, and I, I played acoustic guitar on that. So. Interesting. What kind of music? Yeah, was it? Uh, they referred to it as chamber popper i think yeah <laughs> that, so that would the, you play kind of like chamber halls or whatever or? uh yeah i mean it, throughout germany it, they weren't particularly traditional venues but just some some really nice clubs and um yeah some nice festivals like as you know i mean as we're experiencing right now europe in summer it's, it's a oh, great it's time incredible. for festivals a lot of great outdoor vibes that people are embracing yeah yeah, yeah. it's amazing here yeah so i feel like musically I, I learned a lot from um from playing in that band just due to the unique nature of that lineup like how to how to interact with a violin and a cello and um there was no bass guitar either so you know sometimes between the, the cello and myself we'd be assuming the role of holding down the bottom end um and then rhythmically too you know sometimes if the if James the percussionist was doing a lot of colors then uh, the rhythmic nature of guitar would need to lead certain sections and yeah I, I feel like I learned a lot playing with that band that I think was then really useful when I went on not long after that to playing with um with Missy oh okay yeah like and that the, so that was back in Australia uh yeah the Missy thing started back in Australia for sure but is that what you're asking? Yeah, so but you were touring mainly in Germany. Or oh yeah, with, with Naked Raven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How um, long did was that? Is it? Uh, I did I did two years with them, but the touring was mainly just the summers of say 2004 and 2005 um, in Europe. Wow. Yeah, man, and uh, which was great because I managed to bypass some Australian winters. Um, well, Australian winter to yeah, you compared to my winter. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I got to substitute them for for a German summer. That's true because summers in Europe are incredible. So I good. Mean, if they, there's ne- the sun never goes away, yeah. right? It's like last night here in Stockholm, dude. it was midnight light. You see that? Yeah, midnight still it was light. still light out. I was like, right. I wanted to do a time lapse. You know, how I love the sunset time lapse videos, but it's like it would never happen because it just barely gets yeah, dark. You'd be out of memory before <laughs> exactly happened. Um, That's pretty mad. So, so when you start with Missy. Uh, you know, I know a little bit about her because, you know, working with Brett Dennon and oh, yeah. uh, she sang on, uh, I believe, one of his records, like back up on um, the Hope for the Hopeless record, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. you actually toured with him, right? Like, That's right. Yeah, yeah. Early on, um, I guess it would have been 2008. Um, yeah, Missy was doing quite a lot in the U.S. at that point. We did a tour. It was a triple bill. Um, it was Missy Higgins, Mason Jennings and Brett Dennon. That is hilarious. It was awesome. We were all on the same bus. So it was, um, yeah, for, well, for a lot of that tour, or for some of it, I think it was just Missy and myself, but then Dave and Terrapipe, the bass player and drummer, joined us for part of that. And it was Mason, his drummer, his bass player, and then I think it was Brett... I mean, the two brothers and, and Randy. Randy, the, yeah. Yeah, the McKay brothers and Randy. So, yeah, it was all of us squeezed on a bus couple of tour managers and yeah it was so Chad Taylor yeah. Chad Taylor was on there yeah it was awesome that is I mean that was funny because when we first met like what was it, a few years ago you were talking about that and I was like I, I started working with Brett right at the That's end right. of that because he just got off that tour with Mason yes. and Missy so we just missed each other I remember watching was it Letterman that you guys did yeah yeah I was like ah New, new, new band that's right because the, those McKay brothers I played with McKay uh, the McKay brothers on Good Morning America that was the first time I met Brett we played and then after that the the, the brothers wanted to start their own band and they didn't want to tour anymore or something like that and so like when I joined right after that it was like a whole new band except for Randy was still there on yeah. the drums but um, yeah so that there's some crossover there I mean yeah, small yeah. world that we live in really it's early like and that was that was a fun tour. I've got to say. I mean, one thing that I've found very valuable about touring is cross pollination of ideas with other bands that you might be either seeing frequently on festivals, or if you're supporting them or they're supporting you. It's really cool to be able to check these things out and and be close enough to the artists that you can, um, yeah, really get to know their vibe both as people and as musicians and how they pull tones and like what they're into. Like for example. Um, at the end of last year, when we were in Europe with Passenger, Gregory Alan Isakov was oh um, man, that was an incredible artist from Colorado. Was he man. was the support, and fortunately for us, he he was touring on our bus, so we got to hang with him all the time. Yeah, and get to know him as a dude, and also to get to hear him every night smash it out. Like I I saw his set start to finish almost every every show. day. Yeah, I loved it every time. You, you know, you get to tune into the subtle nuance of, of his delivery and the slight variations that he might offer from night to night. 
And then it, it's, it was really interesting because he, he was just out on his own, uh, which he was saying he very rarely plays solo. Just hard to believe because he, he was in. I know. I, I couldn't believe that because he was so good by himself. It was, it was so like, good. Yeah. Yeah. The way he controls the the groove and the sounds coming out of his guitar, it's incredible. But to then hear all of those songs like on on the album, like the recorded versions with the bands, like oh shit, like yeah, next level even still, you know. That is the coolest thing about touring, and for me too, is is meeting all you guys that I've worked with, and I've learned so much from everybody I've toured with that. I, I would have never learned it like we were saying I would have never learned it in a school yeah and not, I'm not knocking school but the, you, you're just not going to meet these, all these different types of players and even just living in New York because like if I just play with New York musicians I know what we're all kind of doing over there I mean it's a it's a certain thing even from LA but now I'm working with you guys from Australia it's like you're coming from out of different places and now England and yeah, yeah. and Colorado like <laughs> whatever it is I mean everybody and the, the artists are cool too because you like you know what is most everybody we work with has a following to some extent and whether it's massive or small they have a following there's something special about them that obviously people like with, with Missy how long was that I was in a band for I suppose about two years okay did yeah. you do some European touring as well uh, I don't think I did any European shows with her it's US Canada and Australia yeah. okay nice yeah and uh, that was a big yellow bus you were talking about? Yeah, yeah. We it was started, yellow? Started, I don't think I've ever seen, seen it. <laughs> it was wasn't a school time. bus, was it? It wasn't a school <laughs> bus, but yeah. yeah that, so yeah, that was my first encounter of bus touring and, um, you know, and touring of that nature as well. And it was cool, you know, I, I learned so much. Um, and I felt like, you know, she really gave everyone in the band the possibility, you know, to be ourselves. And it, it felt so good. Every gig was beautiful. Um, the Australian shows, like we, we did quite a large, my first tour with her was a fairly sizable Australian tour, um, doing pretty large venues and it, w it was a large band too, like we'd have a string quartet in most of the venues and um, there was a trumpet player in the band as well as myself on guitar, um, yeah, Terrapai on drums, Dave on bass, Jared on keys, so it was a, it was a pretty full sound but when we went to the US it was... It was just a four piece broken down yeah, yeah and we went from having like big production and in ears and like really wide stages to doing these smaller clubs and that felt great it was yeah really oh nice. i love i love the smaller clubs yeah. i've talked about it on this podcast before but do you enjoy what how do you feel the difference between we've been playing these massive crowds like thirty thousand, and then to playing like three thousand the other night like what do you prefer more uh in terms of preference i think with the smaller shows you, you get a greater sense of connectedness with the audience yeah yeah the larger shows invariably the the stage is going to you know expand relative to the size of the crowd and then in front of the stage there's going to be the the photo pit and then often a crowd barrier as well and some shit for lights and maybe at a festival there could be like a pyrotechnic rig for the band that's coming on at midnight and, <laughs> yeah. you know and, and you can be really far away from the front row. Yeah, yeah like the front you, row you would can be hardly like, see. They're just like a blur of people. Yeah, and they're all leaning over. I always feel bad. I'm like, they're all leaning over that fence. And I'm like, you know that that's not the best sounding spot. Right, <laughs> no, like, right in the front is yeah, not yeah. the best sound. Although now they have all those front fills. I do feel like they get an idea, but I feel like back by the sound booth is always the best place. It's like, You'd that's hope where so. you. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You'd hope so. That's true. Yeah. But, um, yeah, look, to answer your question further, I feel like the smaller gigs, you definitely feel a greater connection with the audience, partly because you see them. I also feel like um, I feel more exposed at, on smaller gigs, mm -hmm. too. Like, you know, if, um, at these larger shows, it just feels so surreal. Like, the audience becomes just one big unit. Yeah. One, one big <laughs> yeah. sea of... It's one thing, yeah. Yeah. It's not like... When we're playing, we're like, oh, you can see, like, that couple over there, they're, like, crying during one of the songs. You're like, oh, it's, like, really, that's really deep. You're like, wow, people are really being touched right now. And then this other people over here, they're just, like, smiling and laughing the whole time and loving it. And someone, someone over there is not even paying attention at all. You know, yeah. you're like, what are you doing? Like, come on, let's get into it. Whereas the big C, you're like, well, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Usually there's some camera guy, too, on the side of you. And you're like, really? Like, I can't concentrate right now. I don't know about you, but it, it does mess with me. Like, I, I'm playing it, but I'm aware of this guy, right? Like, he's right there. I'm like, I hope I don't look too dumb, you know? Yeah, yeah. Is, is that on right now? Should I angle towards him? What do they, what do they want? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but, but I think I feel like the smaller the gig, well maybe maybe there's a, a threshold, but I feel like with the 
the smaller gigs like club shows, it's it's invariably more vibey. I, I think because you're feeling the influence of the room, like the sound of the room. Yeah, I love the sound of the room. I know good. sound guys hate the sound of the room. <laughs> but we yeah. love to hear it bounce off the walls. Exactly. I, I love yeah. that. That's It's a nice feeling. Even when you have in-ear monitors, which most touring bands have these days, which I think are an absolute godsend on so many levels, if they're mixed right. Like, mm-hmm. you're entirely, you're, your sound is entirely in the hands of the the capability or lack of <laughs> of yeah. the monitor engineer depending on who you've got um, it can be awesome or horrible and most of the time it's awesome which is great yeah and most of the time like we've I had a couple of situations where I was like oh my gosh this is like I would pull it out and I'm luckily I had amps on stage because I was like I couldn't it just wasn't working yeah. you know and I mean, yeah, back in the day, we would just turn our amps up. Oh, do you want to hear yeah. yourself? Turn it up. That's why the bands were so loud on stage. Exactly. Just crank it, you know? Yeah. And, but yeah, the ears are so, it's more control and more every control. every night it's more consistent. Yeah, and, and less less level too. Like, yeah. I, I really do not miss the days of coming off stage and yeah, yeah. Getting oh. that, you get back to the hotel room. It's like, God damn. You, you got like, I have like chords up high, like yeah. really high. I'm hearing like four different pitches. Yeah, and, and the dissonant chords, right? It's yeah. like, oh god. Yeah, so I'm I'm really glad that you know that's that's avoidable now. You've got a volume control in your pack. You don't have to blast your ears. And yeah, I think it's also great. The the larger the venue, the more valuable the in is because if, if you're far away from other musicians on stage and you were depending on some aspects of acoustic sound or you were hoping to but you know then you've got things blasting through your wedge it gets pretty soupy pretty quickly oh those those big stages where it's the best to me to have ears yes there's i I, i've played and i'm sure you have too lots of festivals with on wedges on those big stages and and you're just so far away from each other you're like are we even playing together like (laughs) i can't even tell like yeah that's punishing and also you know like i feel like having in ears the consistency is so great it it often negates the need for at least for lengthy sound checks and sometimes where sound check isn't possible at all like at a festival where the crew just have half an hour to get all of our shit on stage and line check mm-hmm. um, we can just cruise up and the in-ears sound great yeah. you don't have to look at the monitor engineer at all and if no. you do it's just for a thumbs up like yeah dude everything's cool I feel like playing with monitors or wedges is an art form for sure which um, yeah I think it's not really being fostered these days and it doesn't need to be which is probably a good thing well, it's saving hearing. a lot of people's hearing that's for sure oh man that's that's the main reason yeah. for me and I, I don't think get it's, tired it's anymore. probably benefiting front of house or definitely benefiting front of house mixes generally because front of house engineers aren't battling with blasting stage sounds like it, it's rare like on, on these festivals we've been doing lately for example you don't even really see monitors on stage whereas oh, not know. too long ago like you'd go out and there'd be ginormous like the side fill would be as big yeah. as the PA you know there'd be all this shit hanging down like oh god that's that's gonna be on you know and I've I've been through those situations and um, yeah definitely prefer the in ears yeah, yeah. situation I just saw Liam Gallagher did you watch him play at all on that festival uh, not recently no when, uh, I was like I'll check out a couple of songs oh Pink Pop you yeah, Pink Pop yeah, yeah that's where it was He, they were in the tent right next to the stage we were on and it was like side fill heaven yeah. I mean it was the loudest and I went out front and I was like this is loud I was like <laughs> okay I'd forgotten I mean that, that that's just used to how it be and I was looking at Liam he was just pointing at his monitor engineer like pointing to go up on his I'm sure that's all it is every single time he sings it's like more I can't hear me it's like well no wonder he can't hear you it's loud as fuck on stage damn and intense too and you're gonna let shit slapping off the top yeah exactly hard work yeah um but yeah hey look just to so I don't seem to be contradicting what I was saying about uh, those early US tours with Missy we we had been on in ears in Australia and I hadn't been really comfortable with the situation, but to go from that, like, large, wide stage stages to playing in smaller clubs close together and, you know, having more of an acoustic feel, like hearing each other's amps and hearing the drum kit, that was a that was a really nice experience on, on that tour. Oh, so you were back on wedges for that one. Well, yeah, we yeah. were for, yeah, probably for all of the U.S. stuff. And then, yeah, in Australia, we'd, we'd go back to in-ears. Well, and, you know, the, club, the smaller club, it's, it's actually great because it's like... You, 
is really into it. And that's where there isn't any front fills for people to listen to. So if they are right up front, they're going to hear the stage. Yeah. You know, so they're going to hear your guitar off the amp, which is awesome. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful thing. I love, you know, and you know, a guitar off an amp is just how it's meant to be. It sounds amazing. Unfortunately for keyboards, there's no good solution. Yeah. I mean, unless, unless you're a, a Hammond player. Right? Yeah, yeah, full B3 with the Leslie. better than that. Yeah, but like, my, the, the, the amplifying like a, a sample of a piano is probably the rankest sound I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. I'm, I'd much rather have it in an ear and going through the PA. Yeah. But um, um, moving on, though, I kind of want to know, so I know you did some touring with Gautier. Yeah, so that was um, that was maybe four years after after Missy. Um, and during the most of the time that I was, or that Missy was focusing on the U.S., that was 2008, I was based in um, Berlin at the time um, with my partner, Charlotte. Who's a uh, who's a cellist who I'd actually met a few years prior with Naked Raven. Oh, that's so I, I figured that. Yeah, yeah, so I'd moved over to to be with her and to to suss out Berlin, and it, it worked out really well because um, yeah, I was touring and throwing between Berlin and the U.S. for most of that year, um, which was awesome. Yeah, yeah, two two really good scenarios, uh, and then my visa expired, and I needed to head back to Australia at the end of two thousand and eight. Then in 2009, I began playing um, with an Australian artist called Megan Washington. Oh, that's right. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Which, which was which was a great experience. That went probably for a couple of years. Um, yeah, I started playing with her in the early days. She released, before her first album, she put out about four EPs, which was a really interesting but really successful move. Like, a, yeah, I yeah. think some people have tried to recreate that model because she was able to like really build up a lot of interest around her music and her character um and then when her album hit it was it was smoking like did, yeah did really well it was a beautiful album um yeah so i, I enjoyed touring with her for quite a while yeah I mostly mean, australian stuff we we didn't do much in the u.s other than um like showcase gigs and a couple of south by southwest on consecutive years which um I mean, that was an interesting experience. Yeah, so you, yeah. you'd come to the States with her a few times. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't like the big full US, like, Australia, no, Europe thing. No, at, at that point, her focus was in Australia, which was great. So we, we were doing a lot of festivals in Oz. Um, and that was all on wedges too. Like we we didn't do any in ears with that. And it was cool. Yeah. That was a really fun I vibe. think some artists prefer it actually. They, yeah. They're like, I don't, that's just not the way it's going to be. Yeah. You know, and you're like, all right, well, that's... So that's like, how it that's is. the old school. I mean, I was like that for a long time before I got on ears. I was like really against it. I was like, no, I don't want to do this. It's like it's not rock and roll, you know. And now I'm like, oh, but I can hear everything, and my ears aren't killing it. Like yeah, exactly. Saying. Yeah, yeah. But so that was like 2009-ish, or so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right up until that was kind of right after Missy, actually. Yeah, but yeah. That yeah. Was... So for a couple of years, and that was great. I, I learned a lot out of that gig too. Um, John Castle had produced all of her stuff, and he's. Um, I mean, he, he's an absolute maniac. I know, I've met him Multi a few times. Yeah, and he's a great dude. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was, uh, I mean, he is a maniac. But as, as a musician, <laughs> he's know, incredible. He's, he's one of my favorite guitar players. You know, the way he, he craft, crafts parts are incredible. So to be playing his parts, you know, for a couple of years was a yeah a real eye-opening ex experience. And, um, yeah, again, how to coexist with a keyboard, because Meg plays keys in every song, and often it's, you know, there's there's a lot of information in there, so to try and pick the parts of his from the album that you know I thought could work best live, and with his help too, he was playing drums in the band doing most well all of the live shows, yeah. So you know, with his guidance and also you know his ability to kind of whip me into line if I was playing something that he might feel yeah. was in a, inappropriate or potentially cheesy, that was that was super like a really good lesson in in how to approach things. Um, yeah. I imagine he's a I mean I've only had a few conversations but he's really intense and like I, I know that his brain is like it's just working he's, yeah he's got an incredible mind yeah for sure yeah yeah yeah. so yeah I, I felt like that was a, a really good um, great experience on, on so many levels but yeah musically in, in terms of letting go of a lot of stuff as well I, I feel like the band had quite a, a garagey kind of sound live mm. so to embrace that was you know a thing that I had to um, had to focus on as well, you know, like have to bring a, a looseness in my playing, which I had for many years practiced out of it. Yeah, just trying to be super clean and. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, for a long time, yeah, I tried to make everything quite accurate and clean, and thought that that was important. But then, yeah, I'd learned for 
you know a lot of that music to to make it groove you really got to loosen up and give it a sort of a, a younger feel in a way and that that was a lot of fun like trying to chase that yeah I, you know i sometimes feel like that with with certain artists where you're like if I'm playing super clean and, and perfect, they don't like it. They're like, no, nah, yeah. I wanted to sound a little more like gr- uh, gritty or something. And I'm like, oh, okay, so then I'm trying purposely. And then, I, yeah, you're right. I feel like I've lost some of that kind of early stages of playing where there's some guys that are here on recordings where I'm like, I know they're not like technically profound on their instruments or anything, but like they bring this element that like really fits a song. Yeah. Whereas like where if I would play on it, it may be a little too like sounds like, I hate to say like professional or something, you know what I mean? Like, yeah too much like clean in the pocket whereas it's like it's supposed to sound kind of ratty and loose and that's what I love about the Rolling Stones actually is I never felt like they were like this super clean sounding band they, definitely not and it grooves in this kind of weird way like yeah it, that's rock and roll to me the way they groove like absolutely much different than like grooving in a in a real type pop situation where everybody's yeah. like really like right with the beat and yeah which is you know it's dangerous to to aspire to that level of cleanliness that i think a lot of producers think that that's the way it should be i mean i shouldn't just point the finger at producers but i have been in that is in true, instances though. where you know everything's gridded and mm-hmm. you know you finish a, a take like on acoustic for example and they're like yeah man yeah, there was a bit of a uh, bit of fret noise between those chords towards the end. Yeah, can we just get those chords separately? It's like, well, that's the sound of my hand moving. Like, you know, if you don't want it to sound like a guitar, then yeah, go for it and edit the shit out of it. But, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It, and you know, I've, I've definitely, you know, we both have recording rigs and produce ourselves, and and I found myself doing that too, like recording people and recording my own music and being like, I'm trying to wait. This is getting way too like perfect sounding like it's kind of all right to be loose and, and maybe it wasn't perfect take but that's the take you know and yeah i mean that's just part of like taste and learning and and styles really you know like there's definitely tons of music out there that's so perfect yeah and it kind of bothers me when i listen to it you know yeah some some depth can be lacking you know with, mm-hmm. with that yeah i feel um a producer like t-bone burnett is a really great example of someone who manages to get so much color and so much grit in his recordings how do i put this it, it's just so perfect yeah it, is. It, it sounds like it should be there yeah he you know he gets great players he gets great players and who understand that right like, yeah he doesn't have to tell them anything yeah they just already like oh that's what i know how to play like that you know and yeah that and there's a real art in that uh, in not just assembling the right group of people to make the music sound a certain way but like in for everyone being united in the understanding like this is what we're going for and like we're dedicated to getting it like this is our sound yeah 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 i love that well i mean i know we're getting to the end here oh damn we i know right. there's so much we can cover right <laughs> <laughs> all right well quickly yeah you, you mentioned Gautier before yeah. as an artist who i played with yeah so after um washo's album cycle had finished up um yeah i started playing with with Gautier, and it was just before his making mirrors album came out um which contained the hits the hits that I used it, to know and, oh um, man I could not get away from that song yeah. for like at least a year yeah it was everywhere in the world totally it was and, insane and initially um, yeah there were only going to be a very small handful of shows in Australia with a 10 piece band I think well he wanted to do maybe 5 shows or something like that he said that's that's all we're going to be able to do, but I, I want to do them really well. And this is after the single had already kind of been... No, this was before it had even been released. Oh. Yeah, it's like, cool, I'm putting out an album. I want to do these... Because before that, he was relatively unknown, right? Yeah, well, in, in Australia, he he was definitely known. And yeah, he, he'd had a, a few albums which had done well. Um, yeah, he had a song, Hearts a Mess, which had done really well in Australia. Triple J had loved that. And it was, um, yeah, I mean, it's an awesome song that was quite well known but yeah then when somebody that I used to know came out along came a a huge string of touring for I guess two or two and a half years maybe even three years that was um, wow that was a lot it was great I I learned so much through that gig yeah through um, I mean yeah so much about about music through Wally because as a producer and as a musician his level of depth I've never experienced anything like it and his ability to communicate is quite astounding as well so you know to to get to know him and the way he sees and hears and feels and composes music was just incredible. And to work with him on, um, you know, how I should approach it because it, all of that album, um, it's made from samples. 
when I say the whole there's, thing, there's, there's very little that's you know that's been played in linearly by by a musician. Like there's a lot of chopping up bits and pieces to to you know make something sound um, a certain way, which which was really incredible. Like there'd be parts that I'd be required to play that may have begun their life as a, a hammered hammered dulcimer part that he had then affected after sampling it from a from a record. It's like, oh, can you do this or Oh man! Got, so you were like a sound designer as well. Yeah, like, yeah, and to, and to try and figure out, you know, from conventional instruments how to fit into his music with these sounds, and you know, to work with him on on actually a, obtaining those sounds, and yeah, that was a real challenge. Did you play with tracks as well? Uh, there was yeah, there was some track like we we had click for a lot of the stuff, so that the visuals would line up. Mm. Um, and from out front, there are a lot of sounds coming from the album that you you may think were on track, but um, there are a lot of samples. So Ableton was rigged up with a shit ton of samples from the album, and they were being played live oh, okay. by Tim Sheil and by Wally. They they had there were so many samples. Oh, triggers on stage. Wow, for samples, yeah, a lot. And that was, um, I mean, that was an art in itself. Like, yeah. Yeah, bringing, bringing that to the live audience was crazy. And you did that for a couple of years, like... Yeah. A couple of U.S. tours and yeah. Europe. And yeah, lots of Europe, U.S., um, and Australia. Yeah, man. It's I mean, what an experience. Yeah. I think I was living in L.A. when that song kind of broke through. And, yeah. Um, again, we just missed each other, I'm sure, because I know... Uh, friend of mine was going to live with the drummer Iverson oh, yeah, uh, sure. and they were he was talking to, to me about he just moved to LA and he was like oh you know I know the drummer in Gautier and like I was like oh okay like, I'm going to go see him tonight do you want to come like nah I'm just going to chill here <laughs> and I probably would have met you if I would have come yeah, that no night shit. you know oh, that's wild yeah but um, and then well then we met through Angus and Julius exactly Stone, yeah so. which was the, the main touring gig that I had once that had wound up um, very similar to Gautier as far as learning sounds and, and uh, off of the records as well or was that with Angus and Julia no I, I felt like that was um, I had a lot more freedom on that um, you know whereas with, with Gautier the, the parts were very specific and that was that was also something that I, I learned through that gig um, like the parts were so beautifully crafted and um, had such a strong statement like every part is there for a reason uh, and the way Wally could articulate that, you know, by, by the time he would finish talking to me about, you know, the way a part would interact with a vocal or a percussion instrument, um, something that he'd want me to play, it's like, oh, shit. Like, a, like one, once you learn that and get to know the part and the sound, it's like this actually couldn't be any other way. Like, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's like when you get used to hearing a, a Beatles song happening a certain way, like, you can't imagine any of those elements not, not being yeah. the way they are. You know, I feel like... That's very strong in Wally's music, and it, I didn't, I didn't realize realize it so much until I came off tour with him, for example, and went into the studio, and um, I was trying to come up with parts for this song. I, I remember at a session, and everything felt shit, mm. and I, <laughs> I realized that I was so used to playing the parts that he had designed that were so beautifully constructed. You know, like things that I was just coming up with on the fly in this particular section session, just had nowhere near the validity of his stuff. Wow. You know, because, yeah, you, those parts, the way he creates them, like, the song can't really exist without them. And that's what I try and aim for whenever I'm coming up with a part live or in the studio, like, for it to be indispensable. It's like, well, if, if you could mute this and everything would sound as cool, then may as well not play the part. Yeah, or yeah. like, oh, we'll just bring it down in the mix. Well, then, yeah, like, like, well, it shouldn't be there. Then. Yeah, it, it, should, it should be strong enough um, and important enough that you know you can't do without it. Exactly, and you can actually hear it. Like that, I've, that's one thing I've learned too over the years is like when I do come up with the part, make sure it's actually kind of interesting because just playing like a, a real simple thing, even if it is just chords, make sure there's like a maybe a little melody on the top that yeah. you can hear to make it sound like it's something or something know? interesting in the sound that or this exactly yeah. yeah. Which brings me to A and J like. Um, I had I felt like I had quite a lot of freedom and flexibility which they gave me and and you too of mm -hmm. course like if we're approaching some of their older songs oh yeah um, we've kind of recreated a lot yeah, of that. yeah and definitely. I mean that's I feel like that's one of their their great skills is the ability to just jam and let things like they're very yes. open and they're that's that's a beautiful ability that they both have to let things um, to let things blossom a certain way and to, to just yeah. feel it out. Even with uh, old songs, I mean, yeah. we, were, we were just recreating 
you know, Big Jet Plane was completely different from the album. Not totally. even remotely near. Yeah, the, same. the lyrics and the, the form was the same. Yeah, but like, yeah, we'd all come up with our own parts, and now they're like a part of that song. Yeah, like now I don't even hear it when I hear it on the radio. Like, it's oh like, yeah, oh, that's how that's <laughs> yeah, that's how that song goes. I forgot. Yeah, you know? yeah, and, and that was an interesting gig to coexist with. You know, they both play guitar in the majority of the songs, so. There are two guitars playing, sometimes an electric, sometimes an acoustic, sometimes two acoustics, sometimes two electrics, plus your keys, you know, for, for me to try and fit in. Oh, that man, is, that is a big sound. It's an interesting band. process, and that's yeah. where, in their music, fortunately, banjo can be a stylistic fit at some point, so there'd be things where, you know, I could, I could find that as being a color, you know, yeah. because there can be a more percussive element of that 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 might work um, as opposed to just like bashing out a guitar with the same capo position as them it's like yeah there's no you did end up playing a lot of uh, banjo and lap steel yeah that's right yeah Yeah. just trying to find spaces in the mix that aren't consumed or colors that can go in there yeah Um, yeah and getting a lot of color out of um, out of delays as well has been really useful in their gig like getting some sort of spooky ethereal things that may match up well with the Moog tones that you'd be going for and a lot of the things. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, and then now we've been doing this tour with Mike the last couple of years, and that's that's been a blast. That's been awesome. Yeah, yeah. We've, been doing a, cool. we've been doing a lot of stuff together. Mm. It's been a lot of fun. Loving man. it. Yeah. And, uh, well, thanks for coming on, man. This oh, has been dude, a lot of fun. my pleasure. It's nice to be in room 753. Yeah. Next door. Next to 754. We didn't have to go real far. It's like a meat locker in here. Yeah, well, you know how I like it. Yeah. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, Solo's hotel room is always like a meat locker. Yeah, I like it cold. Yeah. I go in your room and the window's open and there's like incense. I'm like, nah, let's go in my room. <laughs> Sorry, man. Yeah, no, all good. Shit. Anyway, it was my pleasure to be on your podcast. Definitely, man. Thanks. Let's do it again. Definitely. Yeah. All right, man. Cool. Peace. Cheers.